the last section tonight, um, we're going to be talking about the 144,000 again. And I wanted to uh, tie this in with, with, we already talked about Kifa and Yaakov and the, the, the martyrdom of Kifa. All right. So as you guys know, my position on the 144,000 is that they are women. Now, I started out saying before we went live that one of my great um, disappointments in life is that I will put all this research into all these papers. I will throw a bunch of scripture verses at you and cross-reference them and show this is why I came to this conclusion. Not because I'm just using my imagination or my wishful thinking. It's I have come to this conclusion because these books inform me on my reality. And, you know, what people will do is they'll take one passage in, you know, the New Testament and they'll say, well, I think it means this. And, you know, they just go off from there. But um, I have shown that in Hebrew Revelation, it, it distinctly says the, the Hebrew word betula, which is a virgin woman. All right. 144,000 are women. Now, since publishing that, I didn't realize that would be like my most despised. I mean, I say a lot of controversial things. I never thought that'd be controversial. Apparently, this is like the most hated, despised thing I put out there. Like, you know, talk about stealing people's hopes. There's a lot of dudes who I'm stealing their hopes because they don't want to put on a dress. All right. And they shouldn't. But that being said, nobody has contested what the book says. It, it says what it says. They just don't like it. And they're like, well, no, I just don't. I don't believe that. I, you know, they don't come back at me with scripture. They're just like, well, I don't, I don't accept that you know, passages, scripture, whatever. Um, so, that, so starting out, because if I don't rehearse the first two or three uh, pages of what I've already gone over in the past presentation, there'll be that one person on YouTube or the internet that will say, you didn't convince me, Noel, nah, -uh, you know, whatever, because, you know, I, I, I can't assume that everybody has been over this before. So uh, I'm going to go over two or three pages of, of, identifying who the 144,000 are, and then I'm going to start um, uh, going more into it, some, some recent finds I've had that have expanded on this. So here we go. I know bringing around full circle to, as I said, the, the martyrdom of Kifa. And now you're probably wondering why portraits of medieval women fill an entire page and above, and above a 144,000 heading, no less. Do the women share anything in common with the number you want to know? My answer awaits your personal judgment on whether I pass the test or not. <laughs> I, one of the great reviews I got on YouTube is somebody wrote, uh, worst eschatology ever. My, uh, somebody is already writing a letter of complaint to their pastor regarding the worst eschatology ever. And I actually did get these comments. They can't explain why. It just goes you know, against what they were indoctrinated really into believing. Well, then I'm not ready to tell you quite yet. You will have to hold your horses until I walk you back down the happy bunny trail that brought me, that brought about the sweet scented breeze of these lovely ladies of the realm. I offer you another colorful assortment of medieval me ladies without affording any apologies. From the looks of them, you'd think it was a woman's world. So many damsels, none in distress, I'm counting nine on the first page and another 30 in the second batch. 
And though some of them may be, though some of them may be repeating, still not enough. There should be thousands more. Tens of thousands isn't quite right either. I'm thinking at least 144,000. Fine, you caught me. I have strayed from the cult mentality so as to take a new position. Look, sometimes an investigation doesn't always go the way you want it to. That's life. Deal with it. Kind of like how the Millennial Kingdom already happened. Dudes are still getting their knickers in a twist over that one. They're often telling me how I'm crushing their hopes of making the cut and that I should repent of that. We already went over that with the, the Kinker Brothers tonight. I hate to break it to you then because I'm about to shatter your dreams for the second time, at least in one evening, maybe the third, fourth, fifth, I don't really know. Dudes may wear kilts in the kingdom, but the required attire at this dinner party is dresses. It was while reading Hebrew Revelation that discovery came about. The passage, as everybody knows, derives from chapter 14. I have taken the time to write it down so that you can't, in the very least, claim that I'm making it all up. Read it and weep. You can see right there, uh, verse 3. We're on page 40 if you need caught up. And they were singing like a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders, and no one was able to learn the song except these uh, 144,000 uh, whom he brought from the earth. And it says, and these are they who did not sin with women, and they are like virgins and go after the lamb, and they are bought as first fruits of Yahuwah and the lamb, and there is no deceit in the Ruach, and they are blameless before the throne of Yahuwah. Well, I'll be. The quip about the 144,000 being women has gone missing. It isn't there. For the life of me, I thought it was during it. Uh, for the life of me, I thought it was during an earlier reading. Hmm. And the very least, I included some more illustrations of women strumming their song routine as a tie-in to Revelation, probably playing that new song they learned before the throne. Still trying to fill that quota. How many are we up to now? Forty-six. The problem isn't really with the Hebrew, now that I think about it. I didn't actually show you the original language. All I did was feed a line from one English translation to another. And so here it is at, la at long last. You can see it right there. That's a screenshot taken from Revelation 14.4, so that once again, you can't claim I'm making this up. The underlined word in red is, you can see it right there. Yep, we have a match with what I just spilled out. Its English equivalent is uh, Bithula. Strong's Concordance 1330, look it up. It is a feminine noun employed all throughout scripture and always refers to a maiden or a virgin or in the very least somebody's daughter. Usually it is used to infer a young woman who is separated and secluded from having intercourse with men. Its earliest mention can be found in Beersheath, that'd be Genesis, uh, with Revelation 14.4 being the last, and here is the first, you see Rivka. Uh, Rivka, uh, Yitchak uh, goes to the east to find a wife, a woman. Rivka comes out, and it says, and the damsel was very fair to look upon a virgin, a betula, or betula. And neither any man had, uh, had any man known her, and she went down to the well and filled her pitcher and came up. Obviously, Bethula references a woman set apart from sexual intercourse with a man. And in fact, Rivka was in every way a model of the 144,000 to come. It wasn't just men which she had refrained from. 
We don't know her history with idolatry, but she was a young woman, scarcely a day beyond childhood, 10, according to Yashar, or, or the book of Jasher. With the age of accountability finally upon her, Rivka chose to remove herself from the stench of her father's idols in pursuit of Abraham's Elohim, Yahuwah. I am furthermore showing you dozens of passages, all dealing with Bethulah of reference, and in every single one of them, they're feminine maidens. There's never an exception. You may need to take out a magnifying glass. Supposing the 144,000 are men, then it would be the only case in the whole of scripture when Bethula is intended to be read that way, which is an odd habit for any writer of scripture. Yochanan would furthermore be frustrating the expectation of his reader who has devoted his life to the Torah and the prophets and has only recently fallen upon the latest bestseller, defying it actually. And in fact, I will argue that the reader whom I've just described being taught scripture in the intended order rather than the reverse and an inverted manner, which Christianity expects of their neophyte, would never view it through any other lens. Since I'm always trying to keep up with the Na'an game, I highly suspect the biggest objection to the 144,000 women will be the line where it reads, and these are they who did not sin with women, and they are virgins, Bethulah, and go after the lamb. You're probably wanting to know why would, why would stress not sinning with women if it is women and not men being referenced. First off, Yochanan is already describing them as virgins. It would be like him saying it twice. They are virgins, and they are virgins. Not having intercourse with women is a given. There's nothing inherently sexual in the idea of sinning with women. The modern reader assumes that to be the case because they have already been taught to read men into the text. I've already shown you that Rivka was the perfect prototype. If it could be said of her that she did not sin with women, then we could all conclude that idolatry is being referenced. A good example might be the women mourning for Tammuz in Ezekiel chapter 8, 13 through 15, which I talk about in other parts of this document, particularly the, in the uh, 666 section. Those women were sinning with other women. They would go together and worship these idols. All right. Now the part I want you to see tonight, the 144,000 and Kepha, also the two prophets. Bet you didn't expect Kepha to enter a theological argument involving the ladies. Turns out the 144,000 narrative is full of all sorts of surprises. I figure a great deal many of you will shruggingly agree that I'm onto something with the Bethula theme, but then claim I'm reading too much into it with what I'm prepared to show you. But I beg to differ. Either the 144,000 were ladies or they weren't. If they were ladies, then it seems to me that we should begin discovering them, cropping up in the boutiques and the lounges and the lovely rose gardens of early Christian literature. Really, when it comes down to it, I never know what I'll catch in the butterfly net when opening up my extra biblical digs. Though something that you've probably observed over the course of my writing career, nothing excites me further than discovering these oddities and then showing them to you. Now, I'm gonna show you a text uh, since I have found this one, I have found several others, several others that uh, I, it never, it, it always seems strange to me that early Christian literature was really big on women. They talked about women a lot and how these women would refrain from idols and sexual activity. And I'm like, and you'll begin to see like in Torah circles where 
the men particularly get really upset at like early Christian literature, how, you know, they're anti-sex, you know, all these women who are refraining from their husbands. And this is the missing component right here. I'm telling you the 144,000, it all comes into it. All right. The following passage uh, derives from Acts of Kepha or Actus Petri Cum Simone in the Latin, if you prefer. As is the usual custom, I will present to you the passage in question, and then we will have a civil discussion afterwards. So this comes from chapter 34 of that book, The Acts of Peter, The Acts of Kepha, which is a very interesting. And a certain woman, which was exceeding beautiful, the wife of Albinus, Caesar's friend, by name uh, Xanthippe, came she also unto Kepha, with the rest of the matrons, the, the rest of the ladies, and withdrew herself, withdrew herself from, you know, she also from Albinus. It means she refrained from having sexual intercourse with her husband. He, therefore, being mad and loving Xanthippe and marveling that she would not sleep even on the same bed with him, raged like a wild beast and would have dispatched Kepha, meaning he wanted to kill Kepha, for he knew that he was the cause of her separating from his bed. Many other women also, loving the word of chastity, separated themselves from their husbands because they desired them to worship Elohim in sobriety and cleanness. Now, that's something that we've, you know, in the Torah movement, we know about cleanness and uncleanness, but that has been completely lost from Christianity. They would read something like this and go, why is, what, what's unclean about this? Like, what, what is it about them refraining from sexual activity with these, uh, idol worshipers really is you know why is that unclean and whereas there was great trouble in rome albinus made known his state unto agrippa saying to him either do thou avenge me of kepha that hath withdrawn my wife or i will avenge myself and agrippa said i have suffered the same at his hand for he hath withdrawn my concubines so even his concubines are turning to mashiach and they're like yeah, we're we're refraining from uh, idol worship and sexual intercourse with, you know, these idol worshipers because we're saving ourselves from Mashiach. And Albinus said unto him, Why then tarriest thou, Agrippa? Let us find him and put him to death for a dealer in curious arts, that we may have our wives again, and avenge them also which are not able to put him to death, whose wives also he hath parted from them. That comes from the Acts of Kepha 34. In the, in the future, I might show you even more. I'm finding more and more early Christian texts, which and keep in mind, Acts of Kepha is 2nd century. So if you can get the scholars all agreeing that a book is 2nd century, you're doing really good. Really, really good. So this is the closest thing you can get to canon. It's really ancient. Reading something like that in a dark room with the light uh, of a desk lamp and being completely unaware of what was about to transpire was akin to standing at the bus stop on a rainy day, only to have a four by four plow through the puddle, drenching you with a tsunami. I then read it a second time. A good example of that would be the same four by four driving around the block again, only to play the part of a repeat offender. With everything that I've so far shown you, chapter 34 of Actus Petri, screams of the Betula in Revelation 14.4. Read it again. Tell me I'm wrong. If you're not getting uh, wet from the rain runoff, it is only because you're standing too far from the curb, afraid to get the wrinkles in your toes and fingertips. 
And so you can see there, uh, Revelation 14.4, and these are they who did not sin with women, and they are virgins and go after the Lamb. And we read in Acts of Kepha, many of many other women also loving the word of chastity separated themselves from their husbands because they desired them to worship Elohim and sobriety and cleanness. Um, and, you know, their husbands refused to. And there you have it. I've made this easy for you, which is what I'm which is what I'm all about. I took the scissors and the glue stick out on both texts, pasting them side by side for your convenience. Actus Petri actually manages to brighten the highlighter in Hebrew Revelation because we see a practical example of the scenario playing out. The women refrained from bidding with their husbands because the men were idolaters. And you see that more uh, throughout the book, maybe not just in that actual you know, contextual quote there. And it is a worship of Elohim through the purity laws of the Torah, which these women were after. There were many women promoting the practice, as you would expect of the 144,000 number, but then a woman by the name of Xanthipi takes the helm of this passage. The X is pronounced like a Z. My first thought was to look her up in the phone book and see if she were ever listed as having contact information or an address. The only dominant Xanthipi I was capable of tracking down was the wife of Socrates. Not the same person then. This Xanthipi is named as the wife of a certain Albinus, who is furthermore listed as a friend of Caesar or Kaiser. Not certain yet, but I'm guessing that would be Nero. I checked. There is an Albinus who managed Nero's close circle. And amazingly, the Albinus connection swings us right back around again into the biblical. So here we see, uh, according to Wikipedia, uh, Lucius Albinus was the sixth Roman procurator of Judea from 62 until 64, and the governor of, uh, he then became the governor of Tangitana uh, from 64 until 69. Yehuda was a revolving door of Roman prefects and procurators. We see uh, uh, Valerius Gratrus and Pontius Pilate can hang a plaque on the wall for keeping their bum on the Bema seat longer than anyone, 15 to 26 and 26, 36 AD respectively. But then as the sixth Roman procurator of Yehuda, Albinus was like the rest of them, lasting only two years from 62 to 64. Changing a politician's soggy diaper often and regularly is a good thing, but I'm thinking in instances such as this one, nobody wants to do their time in the tribulation longer than they have to. 62 to 64, an important couple of years. That pits us right smack dab in the opening act of the Revelation narrative. And so we read here, uh, appointed procurator by the Emperor Nero following the death of his predecessor, Festus. Albinus faced his first challenge while traveling from Alexandria to his new position in Judea. The Jewish high priest, Ananus, Ben Ananus, it's interesting, Ananus, son of Ananus, used the opportunity created by Festus's death to convene the Sanhedrin and have James the Just, the brother of Jesus of Nazareth, and other people sentenced to death by stoning for violation of the law of Moses. Albinus might as well be an RX series pilot droid. That was an inside clip. 
the opening page of his wiki bio is like experiencing the Star Tours motion simulator ride at Disneyland. If it were an apocalyptic drama, you had to have been there in the 80s. This guy appears to have a near collision with a great many names and places, which Yokanan was so kind enough to foretell. We immediately read about the stoning of Yaakov, a.k.a. James the Just, at the hands of the Sanhedrin, though that is not his only political debacle. You have to wonder if it was his first gig as a Roman uh, procurator. Oh, wait, I've nearly already forgotten it was. Wiki is undoubtedly sourcing Yosef ben Matityahu, a.k.a. Josephus Flavius, for their information. And so why give the Wiki writers any more attention when we can hear it straight from the horse's mouth? So returning to Josephus in uh, uh, Antiquities, this is kind of a long uh, passage, but it's worth reading. I'm going to have to drink some coffee for this. Hold on a second. Thanks, everybody, for hanging in there. We're getting close to the end. And now Kaiser, upon hearing the death of Festus, which we read in Wiki, sent Albinus into Yehuda as procurator. And he was the sixth. But the king deprived Yosef of the high priesthood and bestowed the succession to the dignity on the son of Ananus, who was also himself called Ananus, Ananus ben Ananus. Now the report goes that this eldest Ananus proved a most fortunate man, for he had five sons who had all performed the offices of, office of a high priest to Elohim, and who had himself enjoyed that dignity a long time formerly, which had never happened to any other of our high priests. But this younger Ananus, who, as we have told you already, took the high priesthood, was a bold man in his temper and very insolent. He was also of the sect of the Sadducees who are very rigid in judging offenders above all the rest of the Yahudim, as we have already observed. When therefore Ananus was of this disposition, he thought he had now a proper opportunity to exercise his authority. Festus was now dead. So Festus dies, he's using this opportunity to do what he really wants. And Albinus was but upon the road so Albinus is like still arriving on the doorstep when he gets the when he gets the news of what's happening. So he assembled the Sanhedrin of judges and brought before them the brother of Yehusha, who was called Mashiach, whose name was Yaakov, and some others. We never hear about who these other people are, or some of his. Uh, I put there um, or some of his companions. And when he had formed an accusation against them as breakers of the Torah. He delivered them to be stoned. But as for those who seemed the most equitable of the citizens and such as were the most uneasy as the breach of the laws, they dis disliked what was done. They also sent to the king Agrippa, desiring him to send to Ananus that he should act so no more, so no more, for that what he had already done was not to be justified. All right, well, that's enough there. Um, that pretty much sums it up. Albinus was indirectly tied to the stoning of Yaakov. Notice how it wasn't just Yaakov who was stoned, though. From what I've seen in art class, the paintings always seem to depict Yaakov rejoining his brother alone without anyone else to join him. Well, according to Josephus, there are others. We are simply not told who. Uh, take a note of that. And then look at the reason as to why Yaakov and the others were uh, dispatched or stoned. They were accused of being lawbreakers. And not just lawbreakers, though. They're accused of, of changing the laws and customs. Basically, Yaakov is accused of doing away with the Torah, right? 
uh, the traditions of Moshe. Now you know why uh, I thought to include an entire section on Paul, the Torah keeper, which I didn't read off tonight, but it's in this document. And I, I take you through how the, the false accusations that were thrust on Stephen, they stoned Stephen because they said that he did away with the Torah, and then they tried to accuse Paul of doing away with the Torah. So like Stephen before him, Paul was falsely accused of doing away with the Torah. The temple controllers were his slanderers. And with how his story has turned out, the Christians like the sound of their accusations. And we saw that with the, uh, the, the, uh, the great delusion at the temple as well. They went right ahead and rolled with it, declaring the written Torah null and void, using the Jews' false testimony and Paul as their patsy. The irony here goes out to the Christians who agree with the court evidence and insist that Yaakov did not comply with the law of Moshe. According to Deuteronomy 13, he, Yaakov, would not have passed the test and should have been stoned. Not that I'm saying he failed the Deuteronomy 13 test. That's what the Jews were saying. And considering their pulpit points, the Christians have little choice but to agree with the people who killed them. What I'm about to tell you falls into pre-existence territory. I have a paper on that one too, The Earth is a Womb, went through that as a group. In it, I cover the pre-existence of the righteous by which Yahusha's stepbrother, uh, Yaakov over James, comes into the equation. I wouldn't bring it up now if I thought it were important. This is what we read in uh, the Gospel of Thomas, or Bezora Teom. The Talmudim said to Yahusha, we know that you will depart from us. Who is to be our leader? Yahusha said to them, wherever you are, you are to go to Yaakov the righteous for whose sake heaven and earth came into being. That's quite the claim. Heaven and earth. I spy the two witnesses whom Yahuwah had earlier set before Yashorel in Deuteronomy 4.26. Heaven and earth is your witness. And if I'm not mistaken, Yahusha is literally claiming they came into being because of the standard which Yaakov, James, had set at an earlier time before he ever came to the earth. It would be strange indeed for heaven and earth to come into being for a Ruach who hadn't done anything righteous yet, unless he already was righteous. But then don't forget to put a bookmark into that statement, particularly his identification with the two witnesses of heaven and earth, continuing with the life and times of uh, Lucius Al Albinus. We then read this in Wikipedia. At a certain point, a man called Yeshua ben Ananias, not to be confused with Yahusha of uh, Nazareth, was brought in front of Albinus because he was prophesying the destruction of Jerusalem and of the Second Temple. Albinus interrogated him and had him flogged, but to no avail, since the accused continued to cry his prophecy without answering the, the procurator's questions. Eventually, Albinus declared the man to be a maniac and released him. Wiki once more wants everyone to know that uh, Yeshua ben Ananias is not to be confused with Yahusha of Nazareth, and not only because of the name. Show me one other person who went about prophesying the destruction of Jerusalem as well as the temple. So far, I have only heard about two individuals, Yahusha HaMashiach, or Yahusha of Nazareth, and Yeshua ben Hananiah. The man was a prophet. Both of them were. Perhaps Yaakov gave the same prophecies, and I wouldn't be in the least bit surprised if he did, though we are never told about it. Once again, Wiki is sourcing 
Josephus. So probably a good idea to go directly to him then, and this is what we read. But a further portent was even more alarming. Four years before the war, the war that brought about the, the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, when the city was enjoying profound peace and prosperity, there came to the feast at which it is the custom of all Yahudim to erect tabernacles to Elohim, one Yehusha ben Hananiah, a rude peasant, who suddenly began to cry out, a voice from the east, a voice from the west, a voice from the four winds, a voice against Yerushalayim and the sanctuary, a voice against the bridegroom and the bride, a voice against all the people. Day and night he went about all the alleys with this cry on his lips. Some of the leading citizens incensed at these ill-omened words arrested the fellow and severely chastised him. But he, without a word on his own behalf or for the private ear of those who smote him, only continued his cries as before. Thereupon, the magistrate, supposing, as was indeed the case, that the man was under some supernatural impulse, brought him before the Roman governor, which would be the man of the hour that we're talking about. There, although flayed to the bone with scourges, sounds pretty intense, flayed to the bone with scourges, uh, sounds like when they, you know, went out and beat Yahusha, same thing. He neither sued for mercy nor shed a tear. Hmm. Reminds me of Yahusha again. But merely introducing the most mournful variations into his utterances, responded to each lashing with woe to Yerushalayim. With Albinus, the governor, or when Albinus, the governor, asked him who and whence he was and why he uttered these cries, he answered him never a word, just like Yehusha HaMashiach, but in, uh, in unceasingly reiterated his dirge over the city until Albinus pronounced him a maniac and let him go. During the whole period up to the outbreak of war, he neither approached nor was seen talking to any of the citizens, but daily like a prayer that he had con uh, uh, conned uh, or coined maybe, uh, repeated his laments, woe to Yerushalayim. He neither cursed any of those who beat him from day to day, nor blessed those who offered him food. To all men that melancholy pres uh, presage was his only reply. His cries for, were loudest at the festivals. So for seven years and five months, he continued his wail, his voice never flagging nor his strength exhausted, until in the siege, having seen his uh, presage verified, he found his rest. For while going his round and shouting in piercing tones from the wall, woe once more to the city and to the people and to the temple. So he added a last word and woe to me also. A stone hurled from the blista struck and killed him on the spot. So with those ominous words still upon his lips, he passed away. There you go. The two witnesses of Revelation 11, whom you've always wondered about. Yaakov ben Yosef was the first. Yahusha ben Hananiah, the second. Yaakov and uh, Yahuwah, uh, not Yahuwah, uh, Yaakov and Yahusha or Yeshua. Oh, he was a prophet, all right. And to be a prophet, he would have had to have declared the Torah as eternally abiding and Yahusha the Mashiach. Look, just because the Bible writers were too busy running and hiding from one desert to another to sit down and publish a book about him doesn't mean he wasn't one. What do you suppose the four cardinal directors
production indicator of aside from the swastika, the Tav. And the Tav also happens to be the letter which served as Yehusha HaMashiach's crucifixion device. The quip alone regarding the voice from the four winds ties up nicely with Revelation 7, where we see there, uh, and after these things, I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, nor on the sea, nor on any tree. And I saw another angel sinning from the east, having the seal of the living Elohim, and he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was given to hurt the earth and the sea, saying, hurt not the earth, neither the sea, nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our Elohim in their foreheads. And I heard the number of them which were sealed, and there was sealed 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Yasharel. So this guy's going around, and he's saying, the four winds are declaring this, it's coming down on Jerusalem, but it couldn't happen until when? Until the 144,000 were sealed. And then the destruction could come. I just love the smell of the narrative coming around full circle, especially when it happens in the morning and I haven't finished my coffee yet. Seriously, I was not expecting that to happen until after it happened, completely by accident. Yahusha ben Hanani was a weatherman in so much that he was picking up the scent of judgment in all four cardinal directions. Hearing voices in them probably helped him along. He declared his report for seven whopping years, and like the days of Noah, nobody believed him. Everybody keeps telling me that there has to be Nephilim in the days of Noah. A whole lot of Nephilim. No, it doesn't. The Nephilim hunters love to leave out the actual description that Yahushua gives in Matthew 24. I'm not writing out that chapter here. Go read it and then report back on what it says. It never talks about the Nephilim. It talks about a great many things. He never brings that up. Yahushua doesn't say Nephilim. Contrarily, the scene he conveys is exactly as Josephus describes it. The days of plenty, the days of peace. They were giving in marriage, you know, giving away. They were feasting, and then destruction fell upon them. Meanwhile, you have a prophet out there saying, Woe, Jerusalem, your days are numbered. And they refused to listen to him, just like the days of Noah. Don't let the irony of his death escape you either. A stone came seemingly out of nowhere and killed him on the spot. Mm -hmm. It was a Roman catapult, according to the people conveniently standing next to him. Sure, let's go with that. Also, regarding the two witnesses, I know Yosef ben Matithyahu never says Yaakov and Yahushua ben Hananiah resurrected from the dead. And I take the res resurrection part to be literal. But then why would he? He didn't, he didn't have to. Clearly, he was a member of the Parashim in bed with the Flavians when thinking to bring them up in Yerushalayim's biography. I am very much of the opinion that Yaakov rose from the dead. Supposing you read my commentary on the Zorakifa, then you will recall how the Yahudim were witnesses to Yahushua's actual emergence from the tomb. They were camped on the spot, and still they refused to repent of their wickedness. Why would the situation change if they witnessed his brother rising up to meet him. They, they kill him in the streets. They leave him there. They're handing out gifts. And then pff, he ascends up to heaven. They're like, what? Well, we're still not going to worship uh, Mashiach because we hate him so much. You figure the residents of Yerushalayim would uh, offer gifts on both occasions when this other guy died as well, this other uh, Yahusha. I think, I guys, I think he's, I, I think they've been identified. I think those are the two prophets. Now I know that you know, when we get into the Torah circles, you know, the, the two witnesses are Israel and Judah and, and the, the 
heavens and the earth. Yeah, those are all correct. They are all witnesses. But I actually think that they were two literal people and that they were in Jerusalem and that they were killed during the tribulation leading up to the destruction of the temple. All right. Speaking of coming around full circle, I stumbled upon an illustration of these lovely ladies while on a recent reconnaissance mission online. I'm not saying that Xanthippe, uh, the wife of Albinus, hanging around with some of the other card-carrying members of the 144K posse, but she might as well be. It's the flag which really caught my attention. That's a Tav, the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet, more accurately, a Tav flag. What is she doing with the Tav flag? Do you suppose? I am of the impression that it, that is holding up the mark of Mashiach as a rallying call for uh, for her sisterhood. But then again, I wouldn't really know, seeing as how I wasn't alive during the quote unquote dark ages, from what I can recall. From what I can recall. Who knows? Maybe I was there. What I started out intending to say is that Kifa appears to have gotten entangled up with the 144,000 crowd and Albinus, a well-oiled cogwheel from the beast government, and under the pay of Nero, no less, had one of them for a wife. We hear all the time that Kifa was crucified in Rome and that he was hung upside down on the cross without ever being told the reason. You have probably also heard the one about Yahusha meeting Kifa on the road on his plight from Rome. Well, this is the book from which we glean that information from. So here's the scene right here. Uh, Acts of Kepha, chapter 35. We're almost done, guys. We're just going to read this and we'll finish up. And as they considered these things, Xanthippe, if I'm pronouncing that right, took knowledge of the counsel of her husband with Agrippa. The, the, she overheard that her husband is going to kill Kepha because his wife and all these other women are reserving themselves to be holy for Mashiach, and they don't like that. And sent and showed Kepha that he might depart from Rome. So she is trying to say, get out of Rome while you can, Kepha. They're coming for you. They're going to kill you. And the rest of the brethren, together with Marcellus, besought him to depart. But Kepha said unto them, shall we be runaways, brethren? And they said to him, nay, but that thou mayest yet be able to serve Adonai. So they're saying, look, look, they're saying it would be immoral for you to stay and be, be massacred when you could live to see another day and do more good, right? So get out of here now while you can. And he obeyed the brethren's voice, and he went forth alone, saying, Let none of you come forth with me, but I will go forth alone, having changed the fashion of my apparel. And as he went forth of the city, he saw Adonai, that would be Hamashiach, entering into Rome. And when he saw him, he said, Adonai, whither go, goes thou thus? And Adonai, and Adonai said unto him, I go into Rome to be crucified. And Kepha said unto him, Adonai, art thou being crucified again? He said unto him, Yea, Kepha, I am being crucified again. And Kepha came to himself. This is a vision, guys. People read this and go, you know, oh, they're saying he really went back to No, he didn't go back to be crucified again. It's a vision. And Kepha came to himself, you see that, he came to himself and having beheld Adonai ascending up into heaven, he returned to Rome rejoicing and glorifying Adonai for that he said, I am being crucified. The witch was about to befall Kepha and then he's, he's hung upside down on the cross. It was women. He was hung upside down on a tav due to far too many beds of the idolaters growing cold. Many will criticize the story of Yahushua meeting him on the road, which has resounding echoes of the Rooster Crows thrice episode, though maybe, just maybe, 
the women were important to Mashiach. I'm running away, or in running away from Rome, Kepha set an example, just as assuredly as his return set another one. And only one of those two options, however, could he die as their protectors. And so that's the end of it there. So Kepha died, he died to protect those women to basically say, look, you know, I'm not going to run it. I'm not going to run away from you. I will die protecting you if I have to. And that's what he did. So that concludes tonight. Hopefully you guys enjoyed that. Give a lot of information in there. Yeah, there was some editing mistakes in there. Uh, this is not the edited paper. We'll, we'll get to that. Um, and um, if, if, if you guys wrote questions in here, unfortunately, I wasn't able to see it. So uh, we'll just go over to the... You guys know the drill, the general voice chat. I'm spent. I've been talking for about an hour and a half now. That went way longer than I expected. I was hoping for an hour and 45, went 45 minutes over. Shabbat shalom. One last time tonight, guys. I'll see you guys over in the other room.